there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. On a stormy afternoon in November 1971, Flight attendant Florence Schaffner walked down the aisle of Northwest Orient Flight 305, welcoming her guests. The nonstop flight to Seattle, Washington, was about to take off. But as Florence neared the back of the plane, the man in the back row signaled for her attention. He had a note he wanted to give her. Smiling, Florence put the note in her pocket. She assumed it was his phone number or some other form of flirtation. It wouldn't be the first time a flight attendant received an unsolicited note from a male passenger. But as she returned to her seat, she noticed the man still staring at her, as if to say, look at the note. As the plane taxied down the runway, Florence did just that. She pulled the note out from her pocket and unfolded the paper. In neatly drawn handwriting, it read, Miss, I have a bomb here and I would like you to sit by me. At first, she didn't believe him, but when he opened his briefcase and told her to take a look, inside were six red sticks of what looked like dynamite, surrounded by a tangle of wires. Within an hour, the mysterious man in the back row had control of the plane. Within days, he was a folk hero. Today, Authorities still don't know who he was or what happened to him after he jumped off the plane mid-air. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on D.B. Cooper, the pseudonym given to an infamous 1971 airplane hijacker. After taking control of the aircraft, he strapped $200,000 to his body and leaped into the darkness somewhere over Washington state. This week, we'll recount the hijacking of Flight 305 and the FBI's search for Cooper. We'll discuss the media's sensationalized coverage, the manner in which the public lionized him, and how he might have slipped through the authorities' fingers. Next week, we'll try to answer the question that has plagued pop culture for decades. Who is D.B. Cooper? There is a long list of suspects. Some believe there was an FBI cover-up. But one independent investigation claims to know Cooper's true identity a former United States Army paratrooper. (laughs) 
On the afternoon of November 24, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, a gentleman approached the Northwest Orient Airlines counter in Portland, Oregon. He wanted to purchase a one-way ticket to Seattle. He looked like he was in his mid-40s, dressed in a dark suit, a black clip-on tie, a white shirt, and sunglasses. He carried a briefcase and a raincoat. The airline agent gave him a form, which the man signed, Dan Cooper. He received his boarding pass and walked to the gate. Dan Cooper was reportedly the last passenger to board the Boeing 727. He slowly made his way down the aisle, choosing to sit in the empty back row next to the window, away from the other passengers. Not that this was hard to do. The flight was at less than one-third capacity, with only 36 passengers. Perhaps that's why Cooper's ticket for the one to two hour flight cost only $20. Just after the plane took off, around 2.50 p.m., Cooper handed a note to 23-year-old flight attendant Florence Schaffner. Minutes later, he was showing her the bomb he had in his briefcase. Florence had learned about hijackings in her training, but that was something she always pushed out of her mind. Now, all she could think about was whether or not she'd ever see her family in Arkansas again. But the man with the explosives seemed to have no distracting thoughts. Laser-focused, he handed Schaffner another note, this time with his demands. Another flight attendant, 22-year-old Tina Mucklow, watched the interaction from a few seats behind them. But she couldn't see everything that was going on, so she assumed it was just a passenger requesting casual assistance. But when Schaffner turned around, Mucklow saw the panic in her eyes. Mucklow got out from her seat to see what was going on. That's when Schaffner handed her the notes. Mucklow glanced down at them and knew she needed to tell the cockpit crew. Going to the phone in the rear of the plane, Mucklow softly read the notes to the crew. Cooper's demands were simple. When they arrived at Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, he needed $200,000, four parachutes, and a truck waiting to refuel the plane immediately upon its landing. He expected this all to be organized mid-air by 5 p.m. The crew were in disbelief. They told Mucklow that they'd need visual confirmation of the demands. Mucklow hung up and walked up to Schaffner, who was still sitting by Cooper. Mucklow, knowing that her co-worker was terrified, explained that Schaffner needed to go to the cockpit to show the crew the notes. Cooper looked up, hesitant. He didn't know what would happen when Schaffner left, but he needed them to know this was serious. However, he soon agreed to let her go, and Schaffner took both notes to the front of the plane. In the cockpit, Schaffner showed the notes to Captain William Scott and, voice shaking, said the bomb looked real. Scott told her to remain in the cockpit. It was critical that the rest of the passengers remain unaware of the situation. Her nerves might cause alarm, and who knew what might happen with a spooked hijacker and a bomb on board. Then, Captain Scott radioed air traffic control. There was a hijacker on board Flight 305. Air traffic control told Captain Scott to continue the flight as normal. 
They would update him with more specific instructions after contacting the police and FBI. When Scott hung up, he looked around at everyone in the cockpit with him and sighed. He held on to the yoke and kept the plane headed towards Seattle. A silence fell over the cockpit. It was impossible not to think about the bomb in the plane's last row. A few minutes later, the quiet was broken by another call from flight attendant Mucklow. Cooper wanted the notes back. As reluctant as the captain was, he couldn't risk upsetting the man with the bomb. He returned the notes to Schaffner and sent her back. On her way back to coach, she passed a third flight attendant, Alice Hancock. Hancock watched as Schaffner gracefully made her way back down the aisle to the man in the back row. By this point, Hancock knew what was going on. Mucklow had told her. But she needed to make sure the passengers were taken care of and left in the dark, which meant in-flight drinks and snacks as usual. Inside, Hancock was panicked, but she maintained a calm and professional attitude. She knew things would only get worse if any passengers found out. Hancock was just thankful that she didn't have to deal with him personally. That was left to Schaffner and Mucklow. As the plane continued on its way to Seattle, Mucklow was doing her best to stay composed, sitting next to Cooper in the back row. He seemed pleasant, and she wanted to make sure he stayed that way. She did everything Cooper asked, hoping he didn't have a temper. Mucklow made small talk, trying to pick up any useful intel about his background. Through a break in the clouds, Cooper pointed out the city of Tacoma below. Mucklow took that to mean he was a Washington native, or that he'd been on this flight a number of times. As they got closer to the airport, about a half an hour into their flight, Cooper appeared more nervous. Mucklow prayed that everything in the cockpit was going well and that the FBI had a plan to save her. And they did, but they needed more time. Back in the cockpit, Captain Scott had been in near constant contact with air traffic control. As the plane approached Seattle, air traffic control told Captain Scott to circle the airport, buy them some time. The captain made an announcement over the intercom there was a minor mechanical problem. Everything was fine. They simply needed to burn off some excess fuel. Less fuel made the plane lighter and reduced the risk of a fire during landing. Meanwhile, on the ground, the FBI worked quickly with Seattle banks to gather the $200,000 Cooper demanded. Cooper had requested the bills all be in 20s, meaning 10,000 needed to be collected and their serial numbers documented. This way, after the plane was safe, the FBI could track Cooper down. The moment they were done, around 5 p.m., the FBI radioed to tell the crew that they were just waiting on four parachutes to arrive from the McCord Air Force Base in nearby Pierce County, Washington. With this info, the crew reassured Cooper that everything was going according to plan. Sending Schaffner up and down the aisle under the guise of normal flight attendant duties, they'd kept Cooper up to date on every detail. But this latest information proved to be a problem. He didn't want parachutes from the Air Force. He had requested ones meant for skydiving. So the FBI procured more parachutes from Seattle Sky Sports. 
once they had those, they let air traffic control know everything was ready. Captain Scott had been circling for more than an hour when he received word that it was time to land. At around 5.40 p.m., almost two hours after they were supposed to arrive, Flight 305 touched down at Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. An announcement was made requesting all passengers remain seated. Flight attendant Mucklow was the only person allowed off the plane. She found an unmarked car waiting outside. A courier sent by the FBI stepped out and handed her a bag. He assured her the money was inside. She cautiously walked back up the steps and directly into the rear of the plane, where she showed the money to Cooper. Satisfied, he gave permission for the passengers to deplane. Mucklow called Captain Scott, who made the intercom announcement. It was only when the passengers saw the refueling truck and law enforcement waiting outside that they realized something serious had gone on during their trip. While she was doing this, Cooper also allowed two of the stewardesses, Florence Schaffner and Alice Hancock, to leave. The three men in the cockpit, pilots and co-pilots, were to remain on board, along with Mucklow. The parachutes were brought onto the plane while it refueled, and the four-person crew waited. Their time with Cooper wasn't over yet. Coming up, Cooper's escape. Now back to the story. By 6.30 p.m. on November 24, 1971, Flight 305 had landed safely in Seattle. Hijacker D.B. Cooper received his $200,000 ransom, but he had yet to release all of his hostages. Though he freed the passengers, Cooper didn't allow flight attendant Tina Mucklow or the pilots, led by Captain William Scott, to leave. Cooper had Mucklow write down his latest demands. They were as follows. Going to Mexico City or any place in Mexico. Non-stop. Gear down, flaps up. Don't go over 10,000 feet. All cabin lights out. Do not land again in the United States for fuel or any other reason. No one behind the first-class section. He had one more unique request. He wanted them to take off with the rear stairway hanging open. After the instructions were delivered, Captain Scott relayed this information to the Federal Aviation Administration and law enforcement, who were watching intently across the tarmac and via radar. Then, Scott got on the intercom and told Cooper he foresaw two problems. First, it would be impossible for the plane to take off with the stairway down. Second, they couldn't make it to Mexico nonstop. The plane's fuel tank wasn't large enough. After some discussion, Cooper finally agreed they could stop in Reno, Nevada and Yuma, Arizona to refuel. And out of necessity, the plane was allowed to take off with its landing gear up and rear door closed. At 7.37 p.m., Mucklow looked out at the stormy sky and raised the steps. The Boeing 727 taxied down the runway and took off. Though Cooper was still in control, the FBI was closely monitoring the situation. They scrambled two F-106 Delta Dart jets from the nearby McCord Air Force Base to follow the plane. 
A cargo plane full of parachutists was also called in, just in case Cooper jumped. Then, finally, there was a helicopter that had been circling the airport that was ferrying lead FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach. But almost immediately, there were problems. Cooper requested the plane fly at under 200 miles per hour, well below its normal cruising speed. The Air Force jets were forced to adjust their speed to stay behind the plane and out of view, with one flying above and one below. At the same time, even with the plane's reduced speed, Himmelbach's helicopter was unable to keep up and was forced to turn back. Meanwhile, the approaching storm made it difficult for pilots inside of the cargo plane to see the exit points of the 727. Once the helicopter returned to its base, Agent Himmelsbach maintained contact with the air traffic control. There was no way he was going to let a terrorist get away with $200,000. Inside the 727, Cooper instructed Mucklow to go to the cockpit and stay there. When she looked back, she saw him tying the money bag around his waist with a parachute cord. About five minutes passed. Mucklow and the crew heard Cooper trying to open the rear stairway. Then, silence. It was another 20 minutes before they heard anything else from Cooper. At 8.05 p.m., a warning light came on. The stairs had been fully extended. Captain Scott called over the intercom, asking if everything was okay and if Cooper needed anything. Cooper told them he didn't. That was the last communication anyone had with the man who called himself D.B. Cooper. Between 8.10 and 8.15 p.m., the crew noticed the back of the plane dip as if someone had jumped. The stairs momentarily snapped shut before dropping open again. When the plane finally landed in Reno after 10 p.m., the rear stairway skidded along the tarmac. Captain Scott called out to Cooper over the intercom, but received no reply. The captain then left the cockpit and searched the plane. One of the parachutes had been draped over the seats. A few of its cords were cut off. But the man who called himself Dan Cooper had disappeared, along with two parachutes and the $200,000. He left a black clip-on tie and eight Raleigh cigarette butts in his seat. Scott informed the FBI that Cooper was gone. But within minutes of the plane parking, they boarded and scoured the aircraft for any signs of the hijacker. FBI agents also swarmed every inch of the airport in Reno. But Cooper was nowhere to be found. There was no way Cooper had escaped in Reno. That meant Cooper jumped off the rear stairway. The FBI immediately began to speculate about whether or not he'd survived. A Boeing official, John Wheeler, told the FBI that a successful parachute jump could be safely done from the rear stairs of any of their 727 planes. At 10,000 feet above the ground, the air temperature would have been cold. Himmelsbach estimated that it was 7 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. With wind chill, that could have felt like minus 70 degrees. The freezing rain would have felt like ice bullets as they hit the skin. But it was doable. Cooper could have jumped and survived the elements. 
Captain Scott told the FBI about the dip in the plane around 8.13 p.m. Using this information, as well as flight and wind speeds, they determined that Cooper jumped in southern Washington, in or near the tiny town of Ariel. But unfortunately, because of the storm, any search would have to wait until first light, and that would give Cooper a head start. In the meantime, lead FBI investigator Ralph Himmelsbach focused attention on getting as much information as possible. He set up interviews with the flight crew, including the two flight attendants who spent the most time with Cooper, Florence Schaffner and Tina Mucklow. Then, officials compiled a composite sketch of the man's face that would soon be seen around the nation. As the saga unfolded, reporters across the Pacific Northwest heard about the hijacking. And while the FBI was interviewing the crew, the media descended on the airport in Reno, eager to get a big scoop. The FBI wasn't talking, but apparently one reporter happened to overhear an FBI agent mention the name D.B. Cooper. The name was then passed on. It didn't take long for it to spread like wildfire. On November 25th, the following morning, stories were run across the country about the bizarre hijacking. All mentioned that a man named D.B. Cooper was the prime suspect. And as the news hit the nation, local police and FBI agents descended on southern Washington. They began a 10 to 15 mile radius search of the foothills around the towns of Woodland and Ariel, Washington. It was their best guess for where Cooper might have landed. Lead investigator Himmelsbach continued to search by plane. He flew a low grid pattern over the forest, looking for a parachute, a fire, any sign that could point to Cooper's whereabouts. But the terrain was dense and the weather was still bad. The nearby Gifford Pinchot National Forest covered 1.4 million acres. Himmelsbach looked down on all of the lakes, rivers, and mountains. With such a long head start, Cooper could be anywhere. On Friday, November 26th, two days after the hijacking, more than 100 men stretched out over a five-mile line, combing the area in search of the parachute. Helicopters were used for a while, but the lingering fog and low-lying clouds grounded them. The authorities' efforts to locate Cooper were hampered throughout the weekend by poor weather, frustrating Agent Himmelsbach. He was determined to catch the man and retrieve the missing money. Investigators went door to door questioning locals, but no one had seen or heard anything. Eventually, they expanded their search to the nearby Lewis River. They thought that they might find a body in the currents, but still, nothing. It was as if Cooper jumped off the plane and vanished into thin air. Local police chief Joe May told reporters, either he's hung up in the branches of a tree somewhere and we won't find him until next deer season, or he's home watching us on television, laughing his fool head off. Each passing day meant Cooper could be farther and farther away. But just as the search was proving fruitless, a curious letter arrived at the Reno Evening Gazette. It was postmarked on November 27th, three days after the hijacking, and postmarked from Oakdale, California. 
The message was pasted on a piece of paper using cutout magazine letters. It read, attention, thanks for the hospitality, was in a rut. D.B. Cooper. A few days later, a second letter arrived, this time at the Portland Oregonian. Using a similar construction, it read, am alive and well in hometown P.O. The system that beat the system. D.B. Cooper. The FBI's reaction to these letters is not clear. That said, they probably assumed they were pranks. After all, the media had turned D.B. Cooper into something of a celebrity. The letters could have come from anyone looking to force their way into the national spotlight. But on December 13th, four handwritten copies of the same letter arrived in the mailboxes of the Seattle Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the New York Times. And the FBI treated these new letters much differently. Coming up, the FBI makes a massive discovery and zeroes in on their top suspects. Now back to our story. Weeks after a man calling himself D.B. Cooper hijacked a plane, stole $200,000, and leapt out of the sky, the FBI still had almost zero leads on his identity or whereabouts. Then, on December 11, 1971, four prominent newspapers received letters from someone claiming to be the notorious D.B. Cooper. The one-page-long, typed-up letters stated that the author, presumably Cooper, was no modern-day Robin Hood and that he only had a short time to live. But he hadn't hijacked the plane because he was looking for a high-risk thrill. It went on to say, I'm not a boasting man. I left no fingerprints. I wore a toupee. I wore putty makeup. If true, the letter meant that the composite drawing the media had been circulating was not a true representation of their suspect. And the FBI had even less information than they thought. According to certain accounts, the FBI ordered the newspapers to turn over their copies of the letter and demanded they be kept from the public, which means they believed them to be authentic. But the request for secrecy came too late. Each paper had already sent the letter to the presses. There was no turning back. There was a reason the newspapers were so quick with the story. D.B. Cooper sold papers. The public clamored for any and all details about the case. The legend of D.B. Cooper grew, but the details remained few and far between. The FBI had no way to track where the letters came from. No fingerprints were left behind. After spending four months and thousands of man hours on the case, both on the ground and in the air, the FBI had nothing to show for it. As a last ditch effort in March and April of 1972, Agent Himmelsbach sent a reported 200 soldiers from the Fort Lewis Army base to Ariel, Washington. They scoured the surrounding area searching for any clues. They even went door to door, asking locals if they had seen anything. But there were no worthwhile interviews. By April, their search ended without any more results. Because they hadn't found a body or any evidence that Cooper was dead, 
they assumed he was still at large. The FBI continued to pursue the case, but devoted fewer resources to Cooper's capture. They moved more slowly. They re-interviewed witnesses from the plane and retraced their steps across Washington's forests and through Ariel. Himmelsbach waited for months to see if Cooper would spend any of the $200,000. If Cooper used any of the bills, the FBI would be notified based on the serial numbers. But as the months turned into years, none of the money ever showed up in their system. Over the course of the investigation, Himmelsbach and the FBI considered at least 800 suspects. One of them was Ted E. Mayfield, a local pilot from Oregon. Those who knew Mayfield were convinced he was D.B. Cooper. Six people said to have called into the FBI saying that he matched the description of Cooper and that Mayfield knew how to slow the plane down in order to safely jump out of it. He was also an avid skydiver. The FBI looked into the case and even interviewed Mayfield, but he had a rock-solid alibi. He had actually been on the phone with the FBI the night of the hijacking. They called him for advice about skydiving shoots. Other suspects came from all over the country. Either they matched a description or might have been in the area at the time. And it wasn't rare for a family to call in about a long-lost relative. For the FBI, it seemed no theory was too crazy. They looked into a former U.S. paratrooper and a man who had proved to be a future hijacker, but none of the leads panned out. Everyone they approached either had an alibi or fell too far outside the suspect's description. Cooper couldn't have disguised certain things, like his height, weight, and general build. For Himmelsbach, it was exhausting and demoralizing work. As interest within the Bureau waned, the budget shrunk. There were other, more pressing cases that needed the funding. But in February 1980, over eight years after the hijacking, they finally found their first new lead since the night of the hijacking. Eight-year-old Brian Ingram was spending the day with his family at Tina Bar Beach along the Columbia River. His father, Harold, worked on building a small fire on the sandy beach, but Brian stopped him and quickly swept aside more of the dirt. His eyes widened as he stared down in the sand. Three bundles of twenties, tattered and falling apart, had come to the surface with one swipe of his hand. It was thousands of dollars, so Brian's father contacted law enforcement, who contacted the FBI. When lead investigator Himmelsbach received the news, he was ecstatic. Agents descended on the beach. In total, they found $5,800. The bills were in poor condition, but the serial numbers were still legible, and the authorities were eager to compare them to the list of numbers from the D.B. Cooper hijacking. As luck would have it, they were a match. Himmelsbach hoped there'd be more clues and ordered his team to search the surrounding area. Maybe Cooper's parachute was nearby or even the remains of the hijacker himself, but no other evidence was located. And given that the money had been exposed to the elements over eight years, it was impossible to lift any fingerprints. Even stranger, 
Tina Barr was at least 40 miles south from where the FBI believed Cooper should have landed. It was possible that the money floated down to the Columbia from the Lewis River. The Lewis flowed right by the town of Ariel, where the FBI thought Cooper landed. Maybe the money came loose in Cooper's descent. Or maybe he buried it there himself. Still, the newest lead ended like all others before it, in a dead end. So the FBI packed up and left. Eventually, the money was distributed between the Ingram family and the FBI's D.B. Cooper evidence locker, put next to the clip-on tie and cigarette butts. Not long after, lead investigator Ralph Himmelsbach retired. On his last day in the office, Himmelsbach said goodbye to his colleagues and packed up his things. He was no closer to learning Cooper's true identity than he was nine years ago. All he had were descriptions that could be based on a disguise, disintegrating money, a parachute found on the plane, and some cigarette butts. Himmelsbach left the file on his desk, hoping the next investigator would have better luck. But they wouldn't. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. Landslides clogged rivers and streams. Ash fell over 22,000 square miles of land, including Ariel, Washington. Any evidence that might have existed was likely buried, flooded, or destroyed. The FBI was left with what they originally found. Despite Himmelsbach's hopes, no other investigator had any more luck. No new evidence was found, and no new suspects. As the years passed, the case stayed open, but only out of tradition. Even if agents were actually placed on the case, none of them seemed to be devoting their time to finding Cooper. And then finally, in 2016, the FBI suspended their investigation. The only evidence that could prompt them to reopen the case would either be the discovery of more money or the two missing parachutes. But even though the FBI considered the case impossible to solve, the general public thinks otherwise. And to this day, internet sleuths are on the case, wondering, who is D.B. Cooper? Some think that of the over 800 suspects that were investigated, the FBI might have spoken to the real D.B. Cooper and let him slip through their fingers. Today, the FBI still has a list of their most compelling subjects. And next week, we'll consider three of the most fitting. First among them is Kenneth Christensen, a skilled paratrooper who fit Cooper's description. But more importantly, he worked for the airline that was hijacked, Northwest Orient. Then there's Richard McCory, He'd hijacked a plane just a few months after Cooper and was caught. Some believed he was D.B. Cooper, back for another crime. Others suspected he was just a copycat. Lastly, Robert Rackstraw, another former U.S. Army paratrooper, fits the bill. He was rumored to be involved in clandestine missions during his time spent in the Vietnam War and may have worked with the CIA. Next week, We'll take a closer look at these suspects. Despite dozens of files, extensive searches, and plenty of leads, 
D.B. Cooper's case remains the only unsolved instance of air piracy in the United States. But looking at this evidence again, some of it may suggest the FBI knew the real identity of D.B. Cooper, but covered it up. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two of D.B. Cooper. For more information on D.B. Cooper, amongst the many sources we used, we found the D.B. Cooper Project from True Inc. magazine extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. See you Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Teresa Watson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. Thank you.